Our first lesson for this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, the 62nd chapter. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be called forsaken. And your land shall no more be called desolate. But you will be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your God marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And from the New Testament, from the Gospel of John, the second chapter. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out. And take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Now, he didn't realize where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The word of the Lord, people. Amen. People, the best this world has to offer is nothing in comparison to what our God gives us in our lives. The world, even at its best, is cheap and temporary. But the riches of God, they never end. At the wedding feast in Cana that Jesus and his mom attended, the bridal party made sure that all the best wine they could afford would be served to their guests. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, 
but Jewish weddings normally went on for a week. And it was very important that the wedding party provide a grand celebration and not run out of one of the most important and essential necessities of any large celebration, wine. To run out of wine at a wedding feast would cause terrible humiliation for the newlyweds and a serious embarrassment for their parents. Now, those guests, they drank, they danced, they drank, they ate, they drank, they had a great time. And at some point during their celebration, the wine was all gone. Now what do we do? Lucky for them, both Jesus and Mary were on the guest list. Now, I wonder if they were from the bride's side or the bridegroom's. Hard to say exactly. I couldn't see which side they were sitting on during the wedding ceremony because that place was all packed out with all kinds of people, well, with all the family, friends, and neighboring villagers in attendance. That was the event of the year for that town, and nobody was going to miss it. Now, some sources have suggested that Mary was related to one of the wedding couple. There is an even an apocryphal tradition that says that Mary was the aunt of the bridegroom. And since Jesus was also at the wedding, it makes it even more possible that a relative was getting married. But without Mary there, Jesus would not have involved himself in their embarrassing dilemma, running out of wine, for all of these guests with their festive expectations of a glorious and a good time was not cool. It was not good. It was definitely not acceptable. The parents on the outside are keeping a straight face. But on the inside, they are each saying, you son, you daughter are going to hear about this when your honeymoon is over. In our passage... Jesus states very clearly that for him, his hour had not yet come. But without Jesus there, Mary would not have involved herself in their dilemma either. What could she have done anyway by herself? She had no real way of helping, of solving their issues and ending their embarrassment. But Mary, she knew her boy and the love that is in his heart. Just like any really good mom who knows her children and knows what they can do and what kind of heart they have for others, Mary had 30 years of motherly experience and understanding and getting to know her oldest son. She knew his habits and his preferences and she knew his tendencies and social situations. She had seen so much already in her son. She had observed and watched Jesus ever since she held him in her arms when he was first born and was just a little baby. And then, from there, watching him grow up, taking his first toddler steps and trying not to fall down, hanging on to the side of the couch or the chair so he wouldn't fall down on the floor, trying to work it out. And then, walking with him to temple to worship, and seeing how he played with his siblings and his friends in the backyard, Jesus saying to, to his brothers and, and, and his friends, let's go get our donkeys and let's ride to Jerusalem because I want to check that place out. 
or, or he's playing in the backyard and the, and the big tree that's in the backyard, he's climbing up the big tree. He's, he's saying to his buddies, come on, come on, Jesus. Let's climb that big tree. I want to climb it all the way to heaven. I want to see how far, how high I can go. You know he did those things. He was a little boy. Boys do those kind of things for Pete's sake. And Joseph, looking out the window of his wood shop and seeing Jesus always going higher and higher than he did the day before, he looks over to Mary and says, Mary, there goes your boy again. Always oh, going higher before you know he's going to climb that tree all the way to heaven. You know that's right. And that's exactly what Mary told Joseph. And seeing him at work with her husband Joseph, who is teaching Jesus all about woodworking and carpentry and how to make wood look good. And always knowing deep within her mother's heart that this son of hers was so very special, that he was anointed of God to do mighty things. As the angel Gabriel had first announced to Mary almost 31 years earlier, you will be with child, Mary. You will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now, there's no way Mary would ever forget about a promise like that. Would you? She's a mom. She would always treasure that in her heart, and she would always be waiting to witness its fulfillment in her lifetime. So into this frantic and desperate moment, step both mother and son. And together, it's out of their own personal relationship that comes the very first miracle ever performed by Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but miracles are confusing things, to say the least because they just don't fit our common, ordinary, everyday kinds of expectations and experiences. They leave our mouths hanging wide open and our minds wondering, what the heck just happened? How can this be? Things just don't work like this. You hear what I'm saying? But miracles are more than simply confusing. They are the riches of God given to us in the circumstances, celebrations of our lives. They fill our hearts with joy and our eyes with faith at God's never-ending love toward us. And they lead us to praise the almighty power of God. Miracles reveal to us the personal presence of Christ in our life who involves himself in our concerns and in our celebrations. These miracles given to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. There, they help to meet our physical needs, loaves and fishes beyond number for all the men, women, and children where Jesus feeds the 5,000. These miracles, they help to set us free from the limitations of our bodies and the destructive power of death in John's gospel. There, chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead where Jesus calls out, it says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And then those that were there with Jesus, they saw this dead man walking. He came out 
his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus says, take those grave clothes off of him and set him free. And in John's gospel, these miracles help to fulfill our highest dreams and our deepest longings. The bride and the bridegroom coming together in Cana to share in a lifetime of joy and encouragement of blessing and of family. It is here in the celebration where Jesus works his first miracle. They have gathered in love and in marriage. Brothers and sisters, these miracles, they come to us by grace and by grace they are given. God freely chooses to act on our behalf, not because God has to do anything, but because God wants to, and God wants to because he cares about the things that are important to you and to me. He cares about our needs. He cares about our dreams. God cares enough about you and me to even set us free. And as God works in our lives, God always gives us the best because that is what a loving parent always does. And God's best makes this world's best look dull, foolish, cheap, and temporary. Not sometimes, but all the time. That's why when that water was turned into wine, that wine had more class, more character, more style, more substance, more taste, more texture than all the good wine that bridal party ever could have bought. Their best wine becomes cheap wine next to God's wine. And now I'm getting thirsty. The best this world has to offer is nothing in comparison to what our God gives us in our lives. But brothers and sisters, there is still more. Jesus said to them, fill those jars with water. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. You see, when God acts in our lives for us, God takes those common, ordinary, everyday kinds of things and turns them inside out and upside down into something very special and significant and, dare I say, supernatural. Water becomes wine. And they, in turn, become baptism and communion, sacraments of God's free grace to his people. Bricks, wood, glass, earth become a house of worship, a place for ministry, a beacon of hope, and a foretaste of eternity. Spit and saliva from Jesus in John's gospel there in chapter 9, becomes incredible healing ointment on a blind person's eyes. And real-life sinners, like all of you and me, in John's gospel there in chapter 3, are born all over again and turned into real-life saints by the miracle of God's Holy Spirit and His power to change us. How else? Can you explain the heroism of the early church, the testimonies of fishermen and shepherds, tax collectors, zealots, and even prostitutes whose lives were changed forever like water into wine, who in the face of impossible odds against the mighty Roman Empire, they not only survived it, they not only conquered it, they changed the course of history as we know it. All oh, the love of God has no boundaries in our lives. 
According to Isaiah 62, it never rests. There, God takes forsaken and desolate things and turns them into crowns of beauty. Only God can do that. In Christ, as it were, each one of us is just like those stone water jars at that wedding. We each become a vessel of God's great power. We are each filled to the brim with God's Holy Spirit. And in that spirit, we are changed forever. Something happens to us that by any standard of human measurement can never, ever be changed. Water does not become wine. Water cannot become wine. Water will not become wine. But it does. It does with Jesus. You and I, we each become a vessel of the Holy Spirit who fills us to the brim with the miracle of God's life and his love, of God's mercy and his grace, active and alive in this world. That's why St. Paul can tell us in 1 Corinthians 12, the Spirit of God gives to us nine gifts. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, discernment of spirits, speaking in tongues, and interpretation. All for the common good. Not for show, not for pomp and circumstance, not for pride or place or privilege, but for the building up of the body of Christ, for the creation of community and for ministry of healing in our hurting world. And in the midst of all of this, people, we must always bow before the almighty wisdom of God, before the almighty mystery of God, and before the almighty sovereignty of God. You and I, we all know that miracles and healings do not always happen when we want them to. Whether we desperately want them for others or we need them for ourselves. And so someone like Johnny Erickson Tata comes immediately to mind. Don't know if you know her story. Most probably do. Hot July afternoon, 1967. Anybody alive in 1967? I was 13 years old. Hot July. Johnny was 17 years old. I was 13. I was playing baseball in Brookside Park. Johnny, 17 years old. Her whole future in front of her. All her youthful exuberance, passion, excitement, plans for the future. Going to graduate from high school. What college am I going to go to? What guy am I going to meet? How many kids am I going to have? What kind of job that I can work to glorify God and do what he wants me to do? And she dives off into a pool of water. And in a split second of time, is a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. 17 years old. She always wanted God to heal her. From that she knew he could but God has never done that I remember I spent a year pastoring uh, internship up in Milwaukee back in 1990 to 91 back then it probably still is the most hyper segregated city in our country is on the north side of Milwaukee impoverished drive-by shootings drugs economically depressed you get the picture Milwaukee had the most, it's probably surpassed by now, it had the most violent year in its history 
the year I was there. Uh, it was the time era of Jeffrey Dahmer and some people that I knew, um, some people that they knew, you know, that he had dismembered and killed. But um, just an example of the kind of stuff that was going on in Milwaukee. And so, so many murders and killings during that year. In the area where I was in, a woman, Doris, and the church, um, I lived across the street from the church. I was, one, I, I was one of the very few, maybe the only white person in that neighborhood. And so, but the church was across the street where I lived. And um, a woman, neighbor of mine, her only boy, Michael, 30 years old, was murdered at a house not far away from where we were. I got a call, went to the crime scene, the house, was there with other people in the evening, and there, just praying with people that were standing there waiting for them to bring Michael's body out. And so in the house, ambulance was there, and Michael was on the cart um, stretcher, and so they brought him out of the living room onto the front porch, down the steps, the sidewalk to the ambulance to take him away. Lifeless body. People crying, grieving, spend time with Doris, pray, try to comfort in whatever way I could that God would have me just to be there with her and for her as she's dealing with all the loss, the pain, the grief, the sorrow, the, the, the stupidity of murder. And then went to the wake. And I believe in the power of the resurrection. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Other people, too, went up to the casket. Michael's cold, lifeless, hard body went up there, put my hand on his shoulder there, and prayed that God would raise Michael from the dead and bring him back to his mom, his, her only boy. Bring him back. He's 30 years old. Only boy that she had. And nothing happened. And then later... In August of 1996, my mom, well, my parents, uh, we re they retired out to Pennsylvania. Uh, we bought land in, in, uh, in the 60s at Pymatuni Lake. And my dad's a retired Cleveland police officer. So after he retired, they moved out there. And so they were in, in the country. And, but my dad, uh, just a year before this, um, an accident that happened, longer story on that, and he was severely burned, 30% of his body was life flighted to the Metro burn unit, um, there for over three months. And so now he's living, they're back at, at, after that, living in the country, and, but because my dad couldn't get around on his legs, and because he couldn't get around, my mom was doing more and more work. And because of that, in August of 1996, she felt something in her heart, and knew something was wrong. Went to St. Elizabeth's, which they may have misdiagnosed her at the time, but she was life-flighted to the Cleveland Clinic in August of that year. She got there about quarter after three in the morning. I'm one of six kids in my family, and at that time, my older brother and I, we were the only Christians in our family. And so, mom is hurting, and so they recognized she had a hole in her heart. If you're gonna be someplace for any heart surgery, clinic tends to be the place to be. And so, she was getting good care. They gave her heparin as a way for, uh, to deal with the stuff that she was going through. And so they, they successfully uh, patched up the hole in her heart. She, um, you know, just immediately she started, uh, you know, that that was working well. But because of the heparin, she had an allergic reaction to it. And so there was blood clotting starting to happen in her legs. 
And so my brother and I, I was pastoring a church in Parma then and teaching full-time at an um, uh, urban school for delinquents and, um, that was run by Pentecostal. It was a Christian school run by Pentecostal people. And they believe in miracles. So I, I remember, I'm, I'm calling everybody that I know. I called Sister Tina at the hospital. Can you pray? It's looking bad for our mom. And we need prayer that the blood clotting will go away. My brother and I were praying because we wanted God to show our family that he's the real God, that he's the real deal. They don't believe that. And so we're praying, praying. And one leg got better. And one leg got worse. And so they amputated my mom's leg. In the evening when I was there praying for her, just being with her, it felt so bad that the leg got amputated. But nonetheless, it looked like she might be uh, moved to a better place in the hospital, but she got worse during the night, and then she died. It's in times like these especially, and you each have your own examples to share, when we must bow before the mystery of God's wisdom and his sovereignty and somehow still trust that even when it most hurts, God's greater love and faithfulness are still at work for us. That in all things, God is still working for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8, the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. That God's best is still to come. Amen? Whether that's now in this life, like at the wedding in Cana, or in one day we all will feast at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, Revelation 19. But in the meantime, God calls us to live in faith and to be faithful to whatever God lays on our hearts, trusting like Mary, Jesus' mom did at that wedding. She didn't know what was going to happen. But she gave the problem, she gave the situation, she gave the need to Jesus, and she left it there in his loving and capable hands, confident that all would somehow, in some way, turn out well. Do whatever he tells you, she told the servants. How's that for mom? Each one of us has our gifts to offer to show forth the power and the presence of Jesus in our daily lives. And each one of us is privileged by faith to offer them. And so that is why, brothers and sisters, there are no slackers in the house of God. And when you and I simply act by faith according to the gifts the Spirit of God has given to us, God will work his miracles through each and every one of us, however he determines them, of healing, love, joy, peace, and peace in people's lives. Amen? The story is told by Dr. Tony Campolo, longtime disciple of Jesus, apologist, preacher, sociologist, professor, author, fellow Pennsylvanian. We won't hold that against him. And on and on and on. Tony was in a church in Oregon where he was asked to pray for a man who had cancer. And so Tony prayed boldly for the man's healing. The next week, he got a phone call from that man's wife. She said, you prayed for my husband. He had cancer. 
Tony thought when he heard her use the past tense he had that his cancer had been eradicated. But before he could think much about it, she said he died. Tony felt terrible. But she continued, don't feel bad. When he came into that church on that Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he was going to be dead in a short period of time, and he hated God. He was 58 years old. Anybody here 58? And he wanted to see his children and his grandchildren grow up. He was angry that this all-powerful God didn't take away his sickness and heal him. He would lie in bed and curse God. Do you blame him? The more his anger grew towards God, the more miserable he was to everybody else around him. It was an awful thing to be in his presence, she said. But the woman, the woman told Tony, after you prayed for him, a peace had come over him and a joy had come into him. Tony, the last three days have been the best days of our lives. We've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture, we've prayed. Oh, they've been wonderful days. And I just called to thank you for laying your hands on him and praying for healing. And then, and then she said something incredibly profound. She said, he wasn't cured but he was healed. Oh, God works in mysterious ways, people, simply by being faithful to the witness of Jesus like Tony did and his Holy Spirit in our life. And when we do that, things we didn't really think could happen or would happen, they start to happen. People start coming to church who haven't come for quite a while, finding hope and healing in this place. And others are brought to newfound faith in Jesus for the very first time. And ministries desperately needed in our homes, our neighborhoods, and our jobs, and our schools, they all begin to emerge to best meet the needs and the dreams of people in the circumstances and celebrations of their lives. Brothers and sisters, without you, the body of Christ is incomplete. But with you, the miracles of God are beginning to happen. The best is yet to come. Amen.